Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. everyone, today I thought we would go to the opera. What you can hear in the background is Enrico Caruso singing Una Fativa Lagrima from Gaetano Donizetti's Lezia di Amore. Apologies for mispronunciations. Let me pause a second so you can hear Caruso sing a little. The first thing we should note, this was recorded in 1904. It sounds like a guy hollering into a horn to cut a groove into a wax disc because that was how records were made back then. The first microphones didn't appear until 1920 and wouldn't completely replace hollering into a horn until 1925. The second thing, to my ear at least, is that Caruso kid could really sing. Signed up to the Gramophone Company in 1904, Enrico Caruso became the first superstar of the recording age, and the first recording artist to make a million dollars. This was a far cry from his humble beginnings. Born 25th February 1873 in Naples, Italy, Caruso grew up in a poor, though not terribly impoverished family. His early years as an artist were hard. There's a promotional photo of Caruso, wearing a sheet like a toga. Not because he was in Verdi's Aida. His only shirt was at the laundromat being cleaned. In the 1890s, Caruso took whatever gigs he could, till his big break came with a role in La Boheme at Milan's La Scala Theatre. Caruso first played New York's Metropolitan Opera House in 1903. He became a regular there for most of the rest of his life. And though he bought a fancy villa in Italy, he spent much of the rest of his life living out of an apartment at New York's Knickerbocker Hotel. On November 16, 1906, Enrico Caruso got into a difficult situation while at the Central Park Zoo's monkey house. It was alleged a lady was minding her own business when pinched on the bottom. The situation escalated quickly. She protested she had been assaulted. Caruso, just as frantic, protested his innocence. The police arrived, arresting the opera singer. Thoroughly embarrassed, a tearful Caruso was bailed the following day. Now, the police officers would have likely judged him simply as an Italian, an ethnic group white America had yet to bestow whiteness upon, though a number of Italians had settled in America, prospered, and distinguished themselves. Far too many white Americans were apt to treat Italian immigrants as a criminal class. Caruso was charged, his case going to trial. Now, the trial was an absolute mess. First, the victim, an alleged Mrs. Hannah Graham of 1756 Bathgate Avenue, the Bronx, refused to testify. What's more, she lied to the police about her name and address. But the trial continued regardless. 
The police stated Caruso was a serial sex pest, bringing forth two more women, one of whom remained veiled and anonymous throughout. Both women claimed to have been sexually assaulted by the singer. The judge presiding over the case noted the witnesses and police testimony seemed extremely unreliable, but he also stated he was compelled by law to find Caruso guilty. He was charged a $10 fine, then released. More than a century before the Me Too movement, this amounted to an embarrassing incident for Caruso, though it did no significant harm to the singer's career. Now I can't say with any authority if Enrico Caruso enjoyed pinching women's bottoms or not, nor can I say if his arrest provided the impetus for what followed. His arrest may have had nothing to do with it, but Enrico Caruso received a terrifying letter soon after. The writer stated he knew things Caruso might want to keep secret. It would cost him $2,000 to keep them quiet. Caruso paid. Days later, a letter arrived demanding $5,000. The blackmailers threatened to hurt him if he didn't pay. They would force him to drink undiluted lye water which would have burnt his esophageal tract and ended his singing career. On the letter, random pictures which may have included daggers, skulls, and most definitely their trademark, a black hand. Caruso was willing to pay at first, but a detective convinced him that if he paid, the blackmailers would keep coming back till he had nothing left to give them. The detective set a trap for the blackmailers. He'd impersonate Caruso and meet with the thugs himself. Two men, Antonio Miziano and Antonio Cincotto, arrived expecting a healthy payday. Instead, they copped a vicious beating from the detective. All the men involved in this plot, the singer, the cop, and the standover men, had one thing in common. All were Italian immigrants, who had arrived in, or just before, a wave of 4 million Italians coming to America. In my 2021 episode, Mussolini's Hat, I discussed how the history of Sicily created an environment the Mafia could thrive in, and how one young mafiosi embarrassing Benito Mussolini in public led to a purge which set the scene for the Castellamarese War and the American Mafia as we now know it. This week, we're going back to just before the Castellamarese War to view this story from another angle. But first, let's recap some of that episode. It was a while ago. For thousands of years, Sicily was a place where a deep distrust of authority was advisable. It is a strategic point in the Mediterranean, close to trade routes, and an ideal base to fight Barbary pirates from. The environment also makes Sicily a perfect place to grow crops. This made the island highly sought after by invaders. This in turn made the island a two-tier society, where the lower rungs were often enslaved, and the upper rung were foreign invaders, overly eager to enforce their authority. First, there was the Phoenicians, then concurrent Ionian and Doric Greek invaders then Carthaginians, Mamertines, Romans, Northern Barbarians. The Byzantines were there for a while, followed by Normans, Arabs, the Angevin French, Spaniards and Austrians, 
Many of the invaders treated the locals horrifically. To fight back, locals formed secret clans. Typically, these groups turned to guerrilla warfare whenever oppressed, or whenever their honour had been insulted. In 1282, the Norman king Manfred was deposed by the Angevin French. This soon drew the ire of the clans. After a French soldier raped and killed a woman in Palermo, her husband took vengeance on the soldier, which rapidly escalated into an all-out war. The locals, known popularly as the Sicilian Vespers, killed 4,000 French, ousting them from the country. Rather than declare freedom, though, they invited a relative of Manfred back to rule them. An unsubstantiated rumour arose from a slogan, Morte alla Francia, Italia anela, death to France is Italy's cry, and that it went viral. They allege this birthed the acronym Mafia from its first letters. The word mafioso, meaning an honourable man, who lived by a code of honour, and who had a distrust of authority, came into parlance in the 19th century. By then, the clans were already called families. Their boss, the Capo di Familia. In 1860, these families lent their considerable muscle to Giuseppe Garibaldi's red shirts to rid Italy of the Spanish Bourbons. Free at last, mafiosi were initially given a great deal of power over Sicily. The removal of their oppressors led to a power vacuum and a crime wave took off, perpetrated by non-mafia and mafia alike. King Victor Emmanuel asked the mafiosi to step in and police the land, putting them in a position of both lawmaker and criminal. Several capos, now above the law, became very rich and very powerful. Now in a fortnight's time, we'll come back to Mussolini's house, it needs a redo. Well, that will discuss how these folk end up in America following Mussolini. The fact of the matter is, our gangsters today are something quite different altogether to those guys. Back to America and Caruso's time. These blackmailers became known as the Black Hand. This was originally a name which related just to the act of blackmail itself, but over time became related to them personally. They were mostly unaffiliated thugs, or mobsters with a price on their head back home. The late 19th century Mafia Don were going nowhere themselves. Many of them had taken over the large agricultural estates abandoned by the Spanish. They were doing well out of local criminal rackets. Another element was they were often called in to arbitrate over conflicts, which led to a lot of people owing capos big favours. Those favours were often called in to great effect when a mobster wanted to run for political office. So why risk all that for a move to the USA when life was so good for them in Sicily? But of course the Dons and their mafiosi were only a small part of the picture of life in a free Sicily. Wealth gravitated upwards, and most Sicilians continued to struggle, as they had under the old regime. In 1890, the USA opened their gates to newcomers from Southern Europe. Many of their huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, to quote Emma Lazarus, arrived in search of the American dream. 
Four million Italians would be among them. Many were everyday folk looking for a better life, and some did extremely well. A small number, maybe a couple of thousand, were violent criminals willing to do what it took to succeed in America. No Sicilian capo were believed to have sent envoys to set up shop, but plenty of small-time mobsters saw great opportunities in replicating the Sicilian model. New Orleans had mobsters early on and became the first city to hold an investigation into Black Hand organizations. By 1890, two rival families were locked in a war for control of the city's stevedore business. Now this may have flown under the radar, but on October 15, 1890, police chief David Hennessy was gunned down by several men brandishing sawn-off shotguns. Hennessy was ambushed while walking home from work and managed to return fire on his assassins before being dropped. He lived just long enough to blame the Italians for his murder, but did not name a killer. Now we think one side believed the chief was a dirty cop in cahoots with the other side, so they had him whacked to level out the playing field. As police harassed the Italian-American community and rounded up the usual suspects, the media had a field day with tales of shadowy criminal organizations who take a blood oath and commit horrific acts. Fear, then anger, bubbled over in New Orleans. A long, messy murder trial of nine suspected assassins led to a series of mistrials. So an angry mob gathered outside the courthouse, then burst in, lynching 11 Italians. Across the country, from Chicago to New York to Philadelphia, independent black-hand mafiosi groups did operate with impunity, mostly against their own people. They sent threatening blackmail letters and kidnapped children. From 1906, these black-hand groups took on firebombing Italian businesses who refused to pay them. Within Italian communities, the black-hand were prolific but were a hazy rumour, at most, to other Americans. In 1903, this changed, when a wealthy Italian contractor, living in Brooklyn, got a blackmail letter. But before we speak of him, I should introduce that detective who spoke with Enrico Caruso. Joseph Petrosino was born in Salerno, Italy, in 1860. When young, he lost his mother to a streetcar accident. And in 1873, he emigrated to New York with his father and brother. The family settled into a poor neighborhood in Lower Manhattan, which had previously been almost exclusively Irish. Generations earlier, the Irish arrived in America, only to find themselves othered by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They weren't bestowed as white until they became useful as enforcers of the status quo in police forces. As interlopers on Irish land, and considered definitely not of the status quo, Italians faced terrible harassment in the neighborhood. Irish parents, often policemen themselves, regularly set gangs of their own children out after the Italian kids. A young Petrosino learned to fight very well on his way home from school. He was also disadvantaged academically. 
He was an extremely bright kid, spoke little English, so was put in a class for children much younger than himself. Petrosino got bored and left school after graduating the sixth grade. He worked several dead-end jobs before a role came up as a rubbish collector. The sanitation department, odd as this may seem now, was then run by the police department. The young collector impressed enough cops to secure himself a position in the police force in 1883. But only five feet three inches tall, an exception had to be made for his height. Though as a powerfully built, barrel-chested guy, Petrosino otherwise fit in well. As a token Italian kid on an Irish force, opportunities for promotion were non-existent. Petrosino spent his early years working as a beat cop. His big break came in 1895, when Theodore Roosevelt, yet to run for vice president, and at a loose end, took a job as police commissioner of New York. As commissioner, Roosevelt cleared out as many corrupt cops as he could find. In their place, he promoted on merit. Petrosino had a great arrest record and was tough and resourceful, so he was promoted to detective sergeant, the first Italian-American to do so in America. Once a detective, Petrosino's career took off. A workaholic, he went well over and above for the role. An innovator of undercover police work, he became a master of disguise. He allegedly carried the dossiers of thousands of known criminals in his head, and was notorious for collaring some fugitive or other, having recognized him while out on other business. Although he worked alone, his arrest rate was regularly higher than anyone else in the force. A glory hound, he pursued notoriety for his arrests in the papers as a tough cop whose arrest led to 17 murder convictions in a single year, as a man who sent a hundred killers to the electric chair. He accrued an aura of invincibility about him. The criminals in New York City were terrified of Joe Petrosino. And of course, he broke up a lot of Italian crime rackets. One big one involved criminals befriending new arrivals from the old country, taking out life insurance on them, and then knocking them off for the insurance money. This press attention made him approachable to many Italians, who otherwise would have been very wary of speaking to the police. And this approachability played a part in that case mentioned earlier. On 3rd of August, 1903, a wealthy contractor named Nicola Capiello received a letter stating if he didn't pay $2,000, the Black Hand would dynamite his house and kill his family. He ignored the letter. Two days later, a second letter arrived. It told him he was now as good as dead, but he could still save his family if he paid the blackmailers. Days after that, several groups of strange men arrived at his home. They informed Capiello he had a $10,000 price on his head, but if he paid them $1,000, they could make their threat go away. Old friends appeared at his door to beg him to pay the money, accompanied by terrifying strangers. He gave in and paid them, but then the blackmailers were soon back, now asking for $3,000. Exasperated, he turned to Petrosino for help. Petrosino was lightning quick on this case. 
He identified the men and arrested all five men responsible. This case, anticlimactic or not, was important for three reasons. First, it convinced Petrosino a network of blackmailers were forming into a crime family in New York, and he would declare war on that family. Second, the story was picked up by the press, who reported the case far and wide. The Black Hand were no longer a shadowy rumour. They were now a national threat. Third, possibly in relation to point two, the Black Hand threw themselves headlong into a years-long crime spree, escalating their activities. The first wave consisted largely of dozens of child kidnappings in Italian neighbourhoods. With so many cases, Petrosino turned to the commissioner for help. He begged for his own squad and was eventually given five men, his crew collectively known as the Mysterious Six. Over the years, his crew, nicknamed the Italian Squad, would become around 40 strong. As press publicity around the Black Hand Fever of the summer of 1904 spread, some poor young Italians did turn to organised crime. The system was racist and stacked against them. Why not climb the crooked ladder to success? One case of note to come across Petrosino's desk was an early one, but it likely had ramifications on the end of his life. In April 1903, a man's naked, near-decapitated body was found stuffed inside a barrel on the east side. The victim was a counterfeiter named Benedetto Madonia. After investigation, the murder was tied back to a Sicilian man named Giuseppe Morello and his gang, the 107th Street Mob. Morello was known as the Clutch Hand for his right hand which resembled a lobster claw and he was a bona fide mobster. The nephew of the Don of Corleone, Sicily, he likely fled Sicily to avoid a murder charge in 1892. A terrifyingly cold-blooded killer. He ran his business out of a bar on 107th Street, where he would order the deaths of anyone stupid enough to cross him. He personally was responsible for the deaths of dozens of men. He formed alliances with other heavy hitters, like the suave Ignacio the Wolf Lupo, and his Morello crime family would eventually morph into the Gambino family, the first of New York's five bona fide mafia families. Madonia had crossed the clutch hand while counterfeiting $5 notes, so Morello likely ordered a heavy named Tommaso the Ox Petto to carry out the murder. A dozen men were arrested and charged. But all had to be let go when the trial turned into a circus. Afterwards, one of the mobsters, a man named Vito Cascafero, fled back to Sicily after the trial. He, it seems, was responsible for the circus. When he swapped out one of the mobsters for an average Joe who looked a bit like him, the decoy was only revealed to much clamour on the trial date, when the man produced evidence of his true identity. This brought the whole prosecution case into question. It's been claimed Thero carried a photograph of Petrosino on him for the rest of his life, in the hope that one day he'd get to murder him.
The war, meanwhile, raged between the Italian squad and black hand groups. Thousands of Italian-Americans in New York alone were blackmailed, had their children kidnapped, or had their businesses firebombed. But things took a serious turn for the Wasps of New York in 1908, when they too started to receive threatening letters. A panic ensued, which could easily have turned into another New Orleans incident. White hand groups of Italian-Americans, tired of being branded criminals, came together to fight the Black Hand. In towns outside of New York, a few white hand groups, and in one case a gang of Pinkerton detectives, had some luck with this method. But the white hand soon ran out of steam. In 1907, another bona fide high-ranking mafiosi named Enrico Alfano showed up in New York, having fled a murder charge in Sicily. He arrived as a crew member on the ship, the California. By chance, Petrosino stumbled across the mobster while meeting with a journalist at a restaurant. Although alone and outnumbered by a crew of mobsters with Alfano, Petrosino bellowed his name across the restaurant before beating the living daylights out of a mobster. He arrested Alfano, who was then deported to Naples to face charges. This was not terribly unusual. By this stage, Petrosino had arrested many men, later deporting them in a similar manner. But in 1907, politicians gave the police a new tool to deal with black-hand criminals and other mobsters. If an Italian criminal made it into their country, and it could be shown within three years of their arrival that they had a criminal record back home, the authorities could now deport them back to Italy. And while all this was going on, threats continued to the rich wasps. Reports on, for example, the stress-induced death of Daniel B. Wesson, the 81-year-old heir to the Smith & Wesson fortune, ratcheted up fear among the general public. Police Commissioner Theodore Bingham was pressured to put an end to the Black Hand. Heavy media criticism was also levelled against the Italian squad, who, not for you'd know it, were actually on a roll with their arrests. This had to be strange times for Petrosino, a lifelong bachelor who it turns out had been secretly courting a young widow named Adelina Solino for a decade. The couple married in 1908, had a child, and for a brief time enjoyed married life. In the meantime, Commissioner Bingham chased funding to create a secret team of top detectives to go out there and deal a killing blow to the Black Hand. The politicians at Tammany Hall refused to fund the scheme, but one wealthy patron, possibly a victim of Black Hand letters, paid for Bingham's secret service. As 1908 rolled into 1909, Joseph Petrosino disappeared from public view. Some claimed he'd taken ill and had been bedridden for weeks. In the meantime, a 48-year-old Jewish-Italian merchant boarded a cruise ship bound for Italy. That man, of course, was Petrosino. He was the head of Bingham's secret service and on his way to Italy to meet with police commissioners, criminal archivists and confidential informants. Bingham's plan was to send a man to collect the criminal histories of around a thousand known thugs to make copies 
and then send the records back to New York. While there, Petrosino was also tasked with getting the names of all the serious criminals serving time in Italy. Also, immigration could have a watch list. Thirdly, he was to set up a spy network to observe the Italian Mafia. Things started okay, but while still on mainland Italy, Commissioner Bingham let the cat out of the bag with a flippant comment to reporters. Petrosino could be in Italy, for all he knew. Though he was moving through the country using a series of nom de plumes, he was about to visit Palermo, and his only backup was a pistol. There were dozens of mobsters in the city whom he had arrested, beaten up, and seen convicted, any of whom might seek revenge. One of those criminals, Vito Cascafero, had risen through the ranks of the Sicilian Mafia. He was now Don Vito, boss of bosses. Don Vito rose through the ranks through his smarts and a sense of brand awareness. He insisted on a level of customer service from his heavies while running protection rackets. His men were nice, respectful young men who offered protection against the other brutish folks who would come looking for the money if they weren't there. Many locals felt that if he had to pay someone, then the nice guys should be the ones to get the money. Many locals appear to have a genuine admiration for Don Vito. Which isn't to say he couldn't be brutal, he most certainly could be. In his lifetime, he'd face over 60 charges and only go away on his final charge. We'll discuss that in the fortnight. Petrosino pushed on in his mission, in spite of the danger. He sensed things were due to turn very ugly, but he had a job to complete. One night, he wrote a letter back to Adelina stating something he would explain when he got back home had left him deeply disturbed. He was feeling quite depressed and couldn't wait to return to America. We don't know what it was that upset him. He reached Palermo and soon had criminal records transcribed for 350 criminals on his list. These were sent back to Bingham. Then March 12, 1909, things went horribly wrong. Joseph Petrosino had a busy day ahead, collecting records, meeting with Palano's top cop, then holding a mysterious rendezvous with a stranger. Petrosino seemed unaware the night before, former member of the Morello gang had sent a telegram to someone in New York about something. Nor would he have known the two men he'd arrested in New York, picked him out of a crowd, then met in a bar with two other gangsters. A group of people who later got amnesia very briefly recalled their conversation about the detective. A young child had been tailing him around the city for days on end on behalf of somebody. This detail had not escaped the eye of police detectives, also charged with tailing Petrosino. And then there were those rumors Don Vito who officially was out of town staying with a politician friend, was in Palermo. Truthfully, dozens of people only had to pick up an Italian newspaper to know he was there. His arrival made headline news. Besides that, other people just knew. Years later, it was revealed on the day he sailed for Italy, Ignacio Lupo knew of the trip. 
and Lupo was another one who had reasons to end Petrosino. He'd threatened the detective once, who showed up on the floor of one of his legitimate businesses and beat him to a pulp in front of his staff. How he knew is pure speculation. The Italian squad knew, and one of them may have spoken with someone. Perhaps Petrosino was seen boarding the ship by one of Lupo's underlings. There were many criminals, and at least one politician who wanted revenge. And whoever they were, two men followed Petrosino out of a restaurant that night. Shots were exchanged, and Joseph Petrosino got the worst of it. Witnesses heard the shots, saw Petrosino fall, then saw the men running away. When the gravity of what they saw hit the witnesses, suddenly no one saw a thing. The Sicilian police vigorously pursued several suspects in the murder, and arrested over a hundred suspects, but silence pervaded. Petrosino's body arrived back in New York to something akin to a state funeral. 250,000 people packed the streets to honour him, considerably more in New York than President William McKinley or the actor Rudolph Valentino. Two of his colleagues risked life and limb to return to Sicily to help in the case. They too were bamboozled with it all though they came home with several hundred more criminal records, but none the wiser as to who had killed their boss. Nothing happened with any of those records for quite some time. Commissioner Bingham had lost his job, and his replacement didn't want to act too soon, giving Bingham any recognition whatsoever for the work he'd begun. They did eventually pick up their game, to some real successes around the Black Hand organisations. But by this point, another threat was well on the horizon. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.